Hello. This is episode 7 of the podcast called Blood and Rain. I'm your host, Arthur Dan. Legends about the life and death of St. Christopher first appeared in Greece in the 6th century and had spread to France by the 9th century. The 11th century bishop and poet Walter of Speyer gave one version, but the most popular variations originated from the 13th century golden legend. According to the legendary account of his life, Christopher was initially called Reprobus. He was a Canaanite, five cubits or seven and a half feet tall with a fearsome face. While serving the king of Canaan, he took it into his head to go and serve the greatest king there was. He went to the king who was reputed to be the greatest, that same king of Canaan. But one day he saw the king cross himself at the mention of the devil. On thus learning that the king feared the devil, he departed to look for the devil. He came across a band of marauders, one of whom declared himself to be the devil. So Christopher decided to serve him. But when he saw his new master avoid a wayside cross and found out that the devil feared Christ, he left this bandit and he inquired from people where to find Christ. He then met a desert hermit who instructed him into the Christian faith. Christopher asked him how he could serve Christ. When the hermit suggested fasting and prayer, Christopher replied that he was unable to perform those services as these were not his gifts. The hermit then suggested that because of his size and strength, Christopher could serve Christ by assisting people to cross a nearby dangerous river where they were perishing in every attempt. The hermit promised that this service would be pleasing to Christ, and Christopher very eagerly complied. After Christopher had performed the service for some time, a little child asked him to take him across the river. During the crossing, the river became swollen, and the child seemed as heavy as lead, so much so that Christopher could scarcely carry him, and found himself in great difficulty, fearing for his life and the child's life. When he finally reached the other side, he said to the child, You have put me in the greatest danger. I do not think the whole world could have been as heavy as you on my shoulders were. The child replied, You had on your shoulders not only the whole world, but him who made it. I am Christ your king, whom you are serving by this work. And then the child vanished. This, of course, as I mentioned at the very beginning of the text, is the account of St. Christopher, originally known as Repibus, who was given the name Christopher as Christopher in the Greek means Christ-bearer, as he carried Christ across the river. He was later listed as the Saint of the Strong, and the saint of the traveler. And the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox, the Oriental Orthodox Church, the Lutheran Church, and the Anglican Church. Essentially every single church in the world that is indeed liturgical. But not only was St. Christopher the Christ-bearer, not only was St. Christopher the saint of the strong, this giant, this saint of travelers, but St. Christopher was also what is considered by many the first green martyr. Now, for those of you who are not of a Christian faith or of any faith, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the concept of martyrdom. 
essentially making a great sacrifice for a cause or a great sacrifice for a group of people or a great sacrifice for a faith. Now, in today's day and age, we use the term martyr in response to people like Kurt Cobain, who, after his alleged suicide, and I'm not going to get into the various conspiracy theories that are tied to that, such as him not being able to physically shoot himself with that shotgun, and a suicide note bearing two, bearing two pieces of handwriting that were not of his own. But in that context, Kurt Cobain died a martyr for this generation. He died a martyr for the generation who listened to Nirvana and heard some form of a refuge for themselves. Now, in terms of being a martyr for faith, there are two types of martyrdom that I'm sure most of you are familiar with that are not green martyrdom. In the Christian terminology, they're listed as both white martyrdom and red martyrdom. Now, the white martyrdom is actually common across all faiths. It's common in Buddhism. It's common in Hinduism. Um, it's, I believe it's common in Sufi Islam. But white martyrdom is essentially living a life swearing off earthly desires and typically swearing an oath of chastity. So in the Christian context, you could see this as the life of a nun. You could see this as a life of a monk. You could see this as the life of any person who is trying to advance himself spiritually through sacrificing any earthly desire, typically in isolation. Now, red martyrdom is martyrdom that was far more common during the time that Christians were persecuted in mass. So, before the Emperor Constantine of Rome declared Christianity to be the main religion, the the core religion of Rome as opposed to Roman paganism, Christians were very frequently persecuted and were very frequently imprisoned and threatened with death or conversion. Now, many dedicated Christians chose death and therefore they shed their blood as a martyr. They shed their blood for their beliefs. They died for their faith. They were red martyrs. And then there was green martyrdom. And green martyrdom was practiced by many of the desert hermits. The same kind of hermit that instructed Christopher to carry people across the dangerous river. Now many of these desert hermits were indeed just typically white martyrs, they were monastics. But many of the people in this region, many of the hermits in this region rather, of Arabia, of Egypt, of Israel, of Palestine... Uh, many of them also walked the path of green martyrdom. Now, green martyrdom is described as a specific focus on extreme penance and fasting out of love for God. The typical practice was fasting and labor for the sake of prayer and for the sake of sacrifice. Now, the reason they practice hard labor day in and day out every single day and quite a bit of fasting is it was something more tangible it was something more it was something that they were physically doing as a practice of sacrifice to God and it was a sacrifice of their earthly desires they were focusing on something else that was bound by this earth that practice 
that is earthbound being the labor and the fasting, so that they could completely ignore and completely shut out any potential desire. Now, this practice originated in the desert, but in the 7th century, when Christianity, which was still just plain Orthodox Christianity, this is before the Great Schism of 1054, when Christianity made its way towards Ireland, the Irish people weren't seeing much form of persecution as many pagans had actually converted pretty swiftly to Christianity. But there was a growing sentiment in Ireland after hearing about quite a bit of red martyrdom over centuries and practicing white martyrdom themselves, they sought after a way to carry out green martyrdom, as they had heard legends from the desert. So many of them had traveled to the farthest southwest reaches of Ireland, just off the coast, in a place called Skellig Michael. It's a pair of islands, very small islands, right off the rocky Irish coast that they chose for their abundance of rocks in order to construct a monastery with. Now, for any of you who have seen the Star Wars sequels, the place where Luke Skywalker went to essentially live the life of a monastic and sort of repent for his thoughts of killing Kylo Ren and where Rey visited him and whatnot, the filming location for that Jedi temple was actually Skellig Michael. So there's certainly an air and an aura there that exhibits this level of sacrifice, that exhibits this level of labor, that exhibits this level of seeking out spiritual, an, an elevation of one's spiritual life. Now, I'm sure that many of you listening, and again, thank you for listening, are not of a Christian faith, or potentially, potentially curious about a Christian faith, or you're of a pagan faith, or you're a Muslim, um, what I'm noticing across the board in this community is the realization that a lot of our modern dating life is absolute nonsense. Um, it just sort of chips away at the soul a bit. Uh, oftentimes it's dating just for the sake of dating. Oftentimes there's almost this obligatory practice of dating. There's this obligatory rite of passage for young men it's like oh you're in your 20s now it's time to quote unquote have your fun and sleep around and whatnot but i'm noticing that as this solar movement this change in collective consciousness this elevation in collective consciousness in the past several years but especially in um since as i mentioned before and i mentioned ad nauseum since the great conjunction on the winter solstice of 2020, I'm noticing more and more men in this community who are eventually wanting to get married, or, or they're potentially wanting to live the life of a monk, but that's a separate issue, but are eventually wanting to get married, but they're finding themselves disenfranchised, and they're finding themselves just left empty, and left feeling a bit less, with the prospect of dating, and the prospect of dating many of a female population who are completely wrapped up in degeneracy. They're completely wrapped up in this hookup culture. They're completely wrapped up in everything that, you know, horrendously negative influence, horrendously negative influences 
like the Kardashians and like the Paris Hiltons and the Cardi B's of the world are sort of breeding this this female population that is hell-bent on a road for ruin. I'm noticing that men in this sphere are seeking a way to better themselves and separate themselves from all of this nonsense, for lack of a better term, until they meet someone who that they know is worthy of courting, not dating, but worthy of courting with the intention of marriage. Now, there's this whole dolgen period for many of you in between where you're at now and that point where you reach the time of courtship, you reach the season of courtship. And this is why I speak of green martyrdom. Now, I want to make this abundantly clear. I do believe that this practice is not just exclusive to Christianity. Um, I'm, and this is, again, I'm not attempting to evangelize. I'm not attempting to bring people towards my church, the Orthodox Church, but I will share the fruits of it. I will share the wisdom of it. And I'll share my personal account of green martyrdom. As I do believe that on this fine Sunday, it could help many of you. It could help many of you create a path of green martyrdom for yourself, perhaps for life, for those of you who truly believe that they are called towards the life of a monk, and probably the majority of you who are seeking to better oneself physically, mentally, spiritually, and completely cut out many of the very damaging practices of dating in this postmodern world. So I'm going to share my account of green martyrdom that I believe can be beneficial to all of you and perhaps you could practice within your own life. So as many of you know, I am an Orthodox Christian. I came across the Orthodox faith quite a long time ago um, in passing through the encounter of a Greek Orthodox church in the Bay, in the Bay Area. And I was down in, um, so I was down in San Jose. So for those of you who don't know, San Jose is actually the most populous city in the Bay Area. And it's about 50 miles south of both Oakland and of San Francisco. So if you drive 50 miles south from Oakland or 50 miles south from San Francisco on either side of the bay, they'll eventually, both sides of the bay will converge to meet at San Jose. And a friend of mine who was studying at San Jose State University invited me to go to a Greek festival. And this Greek festival was at a very interesting neighborhood in San Jose called Lincoln Neighborhood. And nearby is a a Rusicution Museum, and then there's a Greek Orthodox Church. And I walked inside, and there was a priest holding up um, Greek Orthodox icons. And I was fascinated by what he was teaching, but I was also fascinated by the aura of the church, the essence of the church. It felt old, it felt ancient, it felt holy, it felt elevating, everything about it. But it felt grounded at the same time. Everything about it was certainly attractive. Uh, And this was weeks before I moved to England. And in England, I wasn't attending church at all. Um, And also in the past... I had mentioned this on multiple podcasts before. When I was about 10 years old, I had many dreams of Russia and of Siberia. And as as these dreams went on, I 
started to do much research about Russia and the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire and Siberia and whatnot, and there was a growing fascination and affinity for the culture. And when I returned from England, I had been roped up into an evangelical church um, around you know, December 2014, throughout the entirety of 2015, and I was, to be abundantly honest, I was in this church less so for the church, and more so for the community and the young adults, you know, 20-somethings who were attending this church and this church group, um, and as I tread forward here, folks, this isn't, um, this isn't intended to be any form of criticism of the evangelical church, but what I've kept finding throughout my time in the evangelical church, at least this church in particular, was a lot of the practices and a lot of the beliefs were very modern and very American. And what essentially bothered me the most was the Christian worship music that I noticed more and more over time was just really pop music. Then you replace the word baby with the word Jesus. And I, that wasn't really doing anything for me. And I was at this church retreat uh, in January of 2016 in the Sierra Nevadas. And they were doing this worship session in the small cabin for hours. And I had my hands raised next to my girlfriend at the time, who was very much wrapped up into worship music. That was actually something she wanted to do as a profession. And I had my hands raised, and I have my eyes closed, and I bring my, my hands down, and I look around and open my eyes, and I realize I don't feel a thing, plain and simple. And I have this sort of flash of a stained glass window, this little vision of a stained glass window, and I said to myself, well, that, that was strange. Um, I, I don't really know what to do with that. Um... And then in 2016, throughout the rest of the year, I was listening more and more to a composer that I've mentioned in the past, in past podcasts, by the name of Arvo Park. And he is an Estonian composer who is of an Orthodox faith. And I started to question throughout 2016 more and more because I wasn't about to just up and leave my church because I felt that was a bit knee-jerk and that was a bit ungrounded and it was a bit um, impulsive. So, but over time, I kept listening to Arvo Part, and I kept deepening my faith and prayer through listening to this very holy music. And I began to be more and more curious about the Orthodox Church. And I asked my mentor um, from this evangelical church at the time, and I said, well, what about the Orthodox Church? Because in my mind, that's the original church. And he said to me, well, it's not really the original church. I'm like, well, what do you mean? It's just like, well, you know, it's just, you didn't really have a straight answer, to be honest. And he claimed that the evangelical church, even though really the evangelical church was born around the 40s or 50s, was a return to the original non-denominational church. And I, I found this very difficult to believe. So I started to do more and more research and I found that the evangelical modern day quote-unquote non-denominational church was really the product of these mega churches forming in the south in the 50s. And then before that, that was stemmed from the Southern Baptists. And before that, that was stemmed from the Anglicans that came, the Anglicans and Lutherans and Baptists that came from 
the that came from Europe as colonists that came from Europe as people seeking a better life in the New World. And before that, the Anglican Church was founded so that Henry VIII could divorce his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. Um, and he adopted, he created the Church of England based on, or the Anglican Church, also being called the Church of England, in order to divorce his wife and separate from the Catholic Church and separate from the Vatican. Uh, but he did this thanks to the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s, thanks to Martin Luther, as Martin Luther was very disenfranchised with some of the very corrupted practices of the Vatican. But then before even the Catholic Church was the Orthodox Church. It was the church that never had a, a pope, never had a single figurehead. It was a church that never had a reformation. It was a church that never had an inquisition. It was a church that, and again, I'm sure that there are Orthodox Christians who are corrupted people and have killed in the name of the Orthodox faith, but there is no record of any form of crusade or policy in governance for killing people in the name of the church, and in the name of the Orthodox Church, rather. So, with curiosity, and with feeling that I was being called to deepen my faith towards a much older origin, I went to a local Orthodox church, and I called the priest ahead of time, and... And I called the priest ahead of time, and I asked him if there was a particular dress code I wanted to respect his church. I wanted to, I was very, I told him I was very curious about the church. Um, I wanted to respect their customs, however. And he told me just to come dress semi-formal, but he also instructed me that there was a class of every Saturday before, every Saturday at four o'clock before their vigil at five. And this is a, a class in learning more about the Orthodox Church. And he said, I'm welcome to come to the class. And he said that I'm welcome to obviously come to the services. But he also said that he'd be willing to meet me at 3.30, about a half hour before arriving to the class at the church. And I immediately walked in the church and I felt the presence. I felt this very holy, very calm, very sacred, elevated, grounded energy. And I said to myself, I think I'm in the right place. And he handed me a Orthodox prayer book. a long prayer rule. You do your morning prayers, you do your evening prayers. Um, and he also handed me a book of the history of the Orthodox Church. And as I spent more and more time in Orthodoxy, I kept reading this book. And I came across the, my, my first understanding, my first time ever hearing of green martyrdom. And the martyrdom through labor and martyrdom through scant food and martyrdom through fasting and martyrdom through, again, very intense labor every single day. And in my training to be a professional fighter and my very spiritual draw to, to lifting heavy weight. And, and this draw towards lifting heavy weights, since I had read about the story of St. Christopher days before I moved to England. I read this and I really felt, especially at the time, that where I was in my life, that I wasn't the quote-unquote husband guy. Now, I had just been, or I was about to be rather, I was going to be the best man in a friend of mine's wedding. 
and this friend of mine had met his fiance in this evangelical church that I had left. And I looked at him and I, I said, you know, you through and through are the husband guy. Now, you are that guy. I don't think I'm that guy. I really don't, at least not now. Um, I feel closer and the more I'm deepened in my faith, the more I ask myself the hard questions, the more I pray on this, the more I feel called towards this very intense, disciplined, borderline monastic lifestyle. And I prayed on it quite a bit, and I had a meeting with the priest, and I said, you know, I don't think that I'm, I don't think, for lack of a better term, Father, that I'm the husband guy. I don't think I'm called to this life of marriage, at least not now. This green martyrdom, and he even he didn't really know much about it. This green martyrdom, I read of these hermits in the desert, and of these monastics in Ireland on the on what they believe to be the edge of the world and this island off the coast of their nation I feel much closer to that and I feel that's who I am at least right now and he said then that's the life you must live and I can sense in you and I can sense through the grounded nature of your words that this is true and I can also tell that you were a truth seeker Arthur and I spent, you know, I spent much of this time before getting engaged, before this time of courtship came for myself. I spent much of this time in deep prayer. I worked seven days a week. I trained seven days a week. I worked in a bar and was celibate for four years. Despite receiving quite a bit of attention, despite receiving quite a bit of phone numbers, to be abundantly honest, any woman who asked me out, I said no. Any woman who... Any woman who basically alluded to some kind of hookup, I said no. And I, I didn't focus any of my energy on women. I didn't focus any of my energy on this dating life. I focused my energy on developing myself physically, mentally, and spiritually. And I would pray throughout my intense shifts as a barback and eventually as a bartender that were very laborious, you know, at times 12-hour shifts. And I pray throughout my bag work and throughout my weightlifting workouts that would be done in the middle of the night. And I would listen to hymns. And I would connect this spiritual life of mine to this physical life of mine and it was especially enriching to me when I was very fatigued when I did not get enough sleep I felt most alive and most connected to God in these times of sleep deprivation in these times of labor and prayer through sleep deprivation in times that I didn't get enough food. In times that I was intentionally fasting. And my strength grew. My spiritual life grew. My body grew. I was never... My, my mental toughness grew. I was never 
the reason why you hear the reason why you hear me oftentimes for lack of a better term criticize and overemphasis on recovery is because I think it's essentially missing the point. When I hear, oh, I, mm, I shouldn't lift, mm, I shouldn't do this because I didn't get enough sleep or I didn't get, I don't, I don't really prescribe to that. Me personally, if there's a workout where I'm going into that I feel tired, I feel that maybe I shouldn't be doing this, I do the workout anyway. And if the next day I'm fatigued, then I take a rest. But oftentimes I feel that these waves, these waves of the body saying, or maybe even the mind telling the body to tell the mind that I'm too fatigued to do this. I didn't listen to. I I relied more on toughness and strength and ultimately faith. Now, for many of you, I know many of the people in the sphere are looking to Christianity or looking to a pagan faith or looking to Islam, or even looking to Buddhism in some cases, as a method, as, I don't even call it method, as a way of elevating their life spiritually, and whichever path you choose, I would choose it wholeheartedly, and choose it seeking the most amount of truth, and choose it every single day with feet firmly on the ground, and head firmly in the clouds. Now, this physical form of worship, dedicating your physical practices, dedicating, let's say you, you take up a construction job in this pursuit, dedicating your your weightlifting workouts, dedicating your bodybuilding workouts, dedicating your jiu-jitsu sessions, your Muay Thai trainings, dedicating any physical act that you can do, towards your faith and trying to deepen your faith through these physical acts is deeply beneficial. Now, I wrote a two-part post on visitations. And the reason I wrote this post is, if you go back and look at it, the first post is a picture of a fisherman. And the first post, sorry, the first post is a picture of a fisherman. And the second post is a picture of a man whose back is to a boulder and he's basically trying to stop this boulder from rolling. And these posts are truly a cautionary tale to times where my spiritual life had gotten a bit out of control and my feet were not firmly on the ground and my head was only in the clouds and I was chasing what were essentially delusions and essentially hallucinations. Uninfluenced by any drug as I have never partake in any drug use in my entire life as a, as a side note these three times in my life where I had my feet firmly off of the ground and my feet were too too far up into the clouds I was leading myself into paths that were essentially lies and paths that were ultimately very ultimately very detrimental to me they were injuring to me. And I wrote about these, these times as a cautionary tale. And I, I stated it as imperative that you can receive great information from God. You can receive incredible visitations 
in the spiritual realm, but your feet have to be firmly on the ground or your mind will be run into oblivion. And it takes a very long time to recover from. Now, the Orthodox service is a standing service. It's a standing enchanted service and it's physicalized. And I don't think that's actually on accident because I remember the first time that I went to an Orthodox vigil, I left feeling spiritually out of shape. It was a two and a half hour vigil. And I left feeling like I just, I, I did my first track practice or something, but my, it, was my, it wasn't my body that was tired, it was my spirit that was tired. And I do believe that a big reason why these services are physicalized and standing is to keep the feet firmly on the ground, to keep the self firmly grounded, to understand from a tangible viewpoint, a tangible understanding of what information was just received so it doesn't sweep, it doesn't swiftly carry the mind away into fantastical lies. These spiritual states can be twisted and can be maliciously manipulated. So to physicalize this, to, to physicalize the faith, to physicalize these spiritual practices, to dedicate spiritually these physical practices is in my mind and truly in my experience to better understand spiritually what it is that you're receiving and what it is spiritually in you that is growing. Now I listed this, you know, in terms of fishing, in terms of labor, in terms of gardening, in terms of just physical prayer as I mentioned before uh, in the Orthodox Church. You can even pray through a sparring session, to be abundantly honest. You can learn things, and I have learned things spiritually about myself through intense sparring. So, to all of you who are seeking deeper meaning, to all of you who are seeking a deepening of your faith, whatever that faith may be, to all of you who are looking to eliminate this chasing of, of women that are ultimately your ruin until you find a woman worth courting, a woman worthy of marriage, a woman worthy of your devotion in the discipline of marriage. I offer you this. I offer you that you do somewhat of a trial. I offer to you That you take up this trial period with one physical act of your choosing. Set aside time. Set aside fishing or chopping wood or weightlifting session. And set this time aside alone. Pray. Pray to your God. Pray in your faith. And continuously pray. And continuously connect towards the spiritual realm deeper and deeper and deeper as your feet are more and more firmly planted on the ground through this physical act of your choosing. The act itself will improve. Your connection to the spiritual realm will certainly improve. And with this, I think after this one trial, gentlemen, I think after this one trial, you'll be able to find 
your green martyrdom. You'll be able to find this period of sacrifice. You'll be able to find this period of replacing what is the negative of this physical world with the positive of the spiritual world being anchored down by a positive spirit by a positive physical act. For any of you who are wishing to partake in this trial, and again, me being an Orthodox Christian, you come to me, say that you're a pagan, come to me, say that you're a Muslim, come to me, say that you're a Buddhist. I'm not going to try to steer you towards Christianity. If you want to know anything about Christianity, I'm more than open to speak about it. But if you're coming to me in your faith, asking for help and asking for feedback and asking for guidance to yourself specifically, or willing to talk out or wanting to talk out what could potentially be your best physical act and best physical place to partake in this trial, I am completely at your service. So, I ask all of you to take up this trial. I ask all of you to do this trial just once. To potentially replace all the negatives of this physical world with the positive of the spiritual world anchored by something positive physically. I do this on the holy day. I do this on the day of the sun, Sunday, for this very reason. For any of you listening now, on this fine Sunday, I encourage you to go to the gym, or go to the water, or go to the fields, or those of you who are stuck in an urban environment who have a physical task that they're certainly avoiding, make the task beneficial to yourself, and do this trial of green martyrdom. And for those of you wondering, how does this path of green martyrdom play in the path of blood and rain? Well, I would certainly say that even for those who are married, this level of spiritual discipline through physical discipline and through tireless output is a cornerstone of the path of blood and rain. I don't wish to confuse, that has never been my intent. But as I carry on, down this path that I was asked to verbalize and asked to define, this path of which I took an oath, one must understand the difference between the origins, the elements, and the tools of the path. And any confusion that there might be regarding this being a separate path. These are essentially one and the same. So until then. Until I hear from you about you engulfing yourself in this new method. This new, this new way. This new tool. This new part of the path. Good night, or in this case, good day, and good storms. Thank you.